Thank you for joining us for the Veterans for Responsible Leadership's podcast in Accountable America. I'm your co-host and producer, Jason Belcher. I'm an Iraq veteran and former Air Force officer. We're real excited to have with us today Dr. Dan Barkoff, who's the founder and president of VFRL. He's a current emergency room physician, former Navy SEAL. And our guest today is Admiral James Savridis, a former four-star admiral in the United States Navy with over 30 years of command experience. He served also as the Supreme Allied Commander NATO the author of several books, most recently 2034, a novel of the next world war, and he also holds a PhD in international relations. So gentlemen, welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be with everybody. Pleasure to be here, Jason. So sir, we brought you on to talk about the last real plebe summer, <laughs> which yeah, I, that, I heard was 1976. Uh, it would have been 1972. Uh, I graduated in 76, so the last real fleet summer, of course, was mine. And this is a, a, a humorous note between myself and the good doctor. Uh, every plebe class thinks they had the last really hard fleet summer. Uh, but uh, I look at the young men and women coming in today, and all I can tell you, Dan, is um, I really wonder whether I could have kept up with um, the, the young superstars we see uh, rolling into Annapolis today. It's a, it's inspiring young people. Well, thank you, sir, for letting, so, letting an Air Force guy in on that joke. And I was going to say, <laughs> also with the young people, my uh, oldest son is uh, enlisting in the Marine Corps this summer. He's headed to Paris Island in uh, July, so I appreciate that vote of confidence for the next generation. Yeah, it's a proud part of the business. And, and by the way, it's kind of fashionable sometimes to talk about how um, the millennials, for example, this cohort, um, are not, uh, in some sense, meeting the challenges of the nation. I really disagree with that. I know the millennial generation. I have two daughters in their 30s. One of them served as a Navy officer. The other one couldn't be in a more different world. She's an executive at Google. Uh, but the two of them and their two husbands, who are both, by the way, physicians, one of them is an emergency room uh, doc, just like uh, Dr. Barkoff, and you know, I look at that millennial generation, I look at all the millennials who served under my command in Afghanistan, Iraq, the Balkans, Syria. It is a powerful generation. And if you look at cycles in American history, I think over time these millennials are going to step up for the country in enormous ways. They already have. They're still young. Their time is coming. I agree fully. I mean, you know, we... I guess they're not even, you know, the kids that I teach in, in uh, at University of Vermont, I teach a, a basic research class to undergrads. And I mean, these are smart, motivated kids. You know, it, it's such a it's such a generational thing to think that, uh, you know, you're you're the last one to get it right. Right. But, um, you know, I wonder if we could step back to 1972 for a second and. Well, what was your decision like? How did you end up going to Annapolis? And, I mean, 1972, right? We're only three years post-Tet Offensive. Uh, you know, Vietnam is winding down. But what drew you to the military? Yeah, and let's, let's recall that uh, the U.S. doesn't leave Vietnam until 1975. So the war is very much... Um, active, it's being turned over to the Vietnamese armed forces. Um, and, and tragically, we just saw that movie again in Afghanistan. Uh, why did I come in in 72? Easy answer, a family business. My dad was a colonel of Marines. Um, he had a, 
a long career in the Marine Corps. He fought in uh, World War II, Korea. Uh, he was a battalion commander of a reinforced Marine battalion uh, in central plains of, uh, of Vietnam. Um, so for me, it was something I aspired to, was to follow in my father's footsteps. So I went to Annapolis, which most folks on this podcast will know, graduates both Marines and Navy officers. But here's the interesting turn of the wheel, Dan. I went to the academy, very uh, committed to becoming a Marine infantry officer, like my father. And that was my aspiration throughout my plebe year. So now plebe year is over, Herndon Monument is done. I'm now a youngster, which is a sophomore, a rising one at the academy, and they send us on summer cruise. So I go out to San Diego, California, and uh, I am assigned to a beautiful, brand-new guided missile destroyer, USS Jewett, later renumbered as a cruiser, beautiful ship. We get underway at uh, sunset, come out of San Diego Harbor by Point Loma, headed into that setting sun. I walked up to the bridge of that ship for my first watch on a ship. I was... Uh, I just turned uh, 18 years old and walked up there and I was like St. Paul on the road to Damascus. I mean, like the, <laughs> the scales dropped from before my eyes and I knew I didn't want to be a Marine. I didn't want to be grinding it out on land. I wanted to be a sailor. And from that moment forward, I knew I wanted to be a, a destroyer officer, which is what I ultimately became. So um, I started wanting and going there to be a Marine but I, I found and saw the light quite literally coming out of San Diego in that early summer evening. Yeah, it's, it's funny how that place, uh, you know, I went there, I went there because of Top Gun. I was like, I'm going to be a fighter pilot. And then I realized after uh, flying a, a, what is it, a T-34 trainer down in Pensacola that I get really airsick. <laughs> and I was like, I, I got to find something else. So it's it's funny, you know, the, the summer experiences are great. You know, the self-selection is, is really important to uh, to be able to, uh, you know, have people who, who want to be there and are, are really, you're going to get your best results with people who want to be there. Totally agree. And, you know, speaking of uh, Top Gun, which is now not one, but two brilliant movies, I was having a conversation with a group of our 40-something super up-and-coming uh, business executives at the Carlisle Group, where I work. I do kind of a leadership seminar in that uh, demographic, kind of the people we think are going to be running the firm in a few years. And uh, we were talking about Top Gun, and we talked about Top Gun 1, Maverick, you know, impulsive. You remember that incredible locker room scene where Kaczynski, Iceman, slams his locker and he turns to Maverick and he says, I don't like you, Maverick. You're foolish. You're dangerous. And then Maverick leans right into his space and kind of does the <laughs> bite thing. And he says, yes, Iceman. And he brushes some imaginary lint off his shoulder. Yes, Iceman, I am dangerous. And that's kind of 20-something, right? That's the volleyball scene. That's the, the flying taking it right to the edge, and tragically, Goose is killed in the result of all that. That's the young Maverick. And then you see Maverick Top Gun 2 or whatever. I guess it's called Top Gun Maverick. And this really is about the, the leadership transition of, 
of Maverick. He becomes a, a mature leader. He's still kind of dangerous in the air, uh, but he has learned how to temper that, how to lead, how to, how to bring his team through. And here's final thought here. The through line in those two movies is mentorship. Because if you think of Maverick, what saves him in the first one is the mentorship of Viper, the Tom Skurrett character who, who runs, yes. who sees something in this young fighter pilot. And then by the second film, of course, it's Maverick, who has become the mentor, most notably to Goose's son. It's a no, it's, really it's, powerful it's character. point. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think back to, um, you know, th things that I wanted to do, you know, even in tactical situations when I was 24, um, and, uh, you know, the, the commander, who at the time seemed ancient but was probably 35, <laughs> saying, you know, let's pump the brakes on that. Let's, you know, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, I think that, you know, that is kind of what being an officer is about. I mean, you know, it's a... It's perhaps an oversimplification, but you know you're you're paid to uh, you know to take calculated risks, and and what I mean is the calculated part, right? So, um, experience is, is a heck of a teacher, and, and trying to trying to transmit that uh, that knowledge onto the following generation without them paying the price in blood is is part of the gig. Yeah, it, it's a, it's not a side hustle. That's the main thing you're there to do is to bring order out of chaos. But your point to balance risk with reward. And, um, you know, my, my latest book is actually to risk it all, which is about this exact subject. It's uh, the subtitle of it is uh, nine conflicts and the crucible of decision. And it takes nine different sailors um, who are each of them facing a moment of real crisis. Starts most obviously, I suppose, with John Paul Jones, Stephen Decatur, and the Barbary Wars, and tracks all the way to, very recently, Captain Brett Crozier, the commanding officer of the Roosevelt, who loses his command over mm -hmm. his distance, that he will not take excessive risk with COVID in his crew of 5,000-plus on a peacetime mission. I think Brett Crozier made the right calculus. I think the Navy undercut him in ways it should not have. But each of these case studies in the, the book, it's a very slim book, very short stories of these Navy heroes. It includes Dory Miller, the mess cook who runs to the guns at Pearl Harbor. Uh, mm -hmm. includes, includes Michelle Howard uh, trying to figure out how to use all the elements of national power risking the life of Captain Phillips as she seeks to rescue him. She's the one star in command. I think they're very compelling stories, Dan and, and Jason, and they all center on that precise idea of how much risk are you willing to take. That's a, I, I'd love to read it. That sounds, that sounds incredible. The, um, you know, it's, it's funny. I just finished, uh, I'm sure you've read this or, or more familiar with it than I, but, uh, the Ian Toll books on the, the war in Pacific and, uh, you know, Admiral Halsey. And I, I, it's a bit of a tangent, but what's, what's your, what's your take on Halsey? Yeah, I think all of us, um, particularly in the surface Navy who spent a lot of time in the Pacific end up on either 
Team Halsey or Team Spruance, <laughs> right? So here right. is, for those who aren't intimately familiar with these two iconic admirals, you have Halsey, who is the ultimate full speed ahead, charge into battle. He, he never saw a television camera. He didn't want to plant himself in front of. He was very <laughs> quick with a quip. By the time I'm done with the Japs, their language will be spoken only in hell. That kind of larger-than-life figure. He's also impulsive, rash. He makes a terrible decision at the Battle of Leyte Gulf and almost, almost loses a majority of Douglas MacArthur's landing force, saved by the mm -hmm. way, destroyer captains. Halsey has many things I admire give me Spruance. Spruance was, his nickname was the professor. He was someone who was slight of build, calm of tone, very thoughtful, just a thinking machine. He's the one who wins the battle of Midway. Halsey almost loses the battle of Lady Gulf. Um, at the end of the war, however, Halsey ends up with five stars as a fleet admiral because he's so flamboyant. Whereas Spruance, self-effacing, humble, servant leader, ends up with four stars. I would have taken those four stars and Team Spruance over Team Halsey. Love it. You know, it's it's interesting, right? You know, I can imagine a, I can imagine a time, right? Like maybe you need Halsey in 1942, okay. right? And you need Spruance Ooh. in 45. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and by the way, let's take it one clip further back. And we, we've seen this in all of our wars, right? The, so often, the admirals and generals you start the war with are not the ones you want to fight the war. The classic example of this, of course, is McClellan in the Civil War, General McClellan, who looked sure. like a perfect general. He was a parade ground general, just matinee looks and very dynamic. He couldn't fight his way out of a paper bag. Eventually, Lincoln worked through the roster till he hit on Ulysses S. Grant, who looked like, you know, eight miles of bad road, drank like a smoke <laughs> incessantly, couldn't put on a uniform, couldn't care less. Uh, but boy, he could fight. And so that syndrome is extant in the Second World War as well, where you have to find your way to the generals that you need. Don't forget Eisenhower, who wins the war in Europe, starts the war um, as a colonel or an sure. aide MacArthur, right? Um, by the end of the war, he's the supreme allied commander, the first of my line. I'm the 16th. you got to find those folks. And in the Navy, uh, husband Kimmel was the commander of the Pacific Fleet. By all accounts, a very nice man, Boy, right out of central casting, 6'2", steely gray hair. Um, no, not the right admiral. We needed Nimitz, and Nimitz knew what he needed in 42. He needed a Halsey, who, whose motto was uh, strike hard, strike fast, strike often. And uh, you needed him in 42. But you're right, Dan. By 45, um, Halsey it was a completely different set of cards. We needed the more thoughtful mien of a in my view, of a spruance by then. So let me ask you this, sir. So I have some questions <laughs> uh, about, you know, being kind of in the upper echelon of command. And once you sort of get, you know, 
Well, let me back up even further. Okay, you know, uh, many of our listeners, many of our listeners are, you know, ex, uh, you know, many have retired, but you know, kind of ex field grade officers. Sure. Um, you know, E sevens, E eights, you know, things like that. Um, and when you make the transition from being, you know, an O six to an O seven, right? You're a general now. You're a, um, you know, you're an admiral. How does that feel to you? And is, is that really different? And does your, and, and furthermore, does the, does the service recognize that? And what kind of, um, you know, education do you get on, on your new role? Um, all great questions. Let's start with the education. Since you finished with it, um, there's not a great deal. Now, to make general or admiral at one-star grade, absolutely mandatory that you've attended one year minimum of war college. So for sure, you've been to Navy War College, Air War College, Army War College, National Defense University. I, I went to National War College, one of the colleges at the National Defense University in Washington. But you've got a, a pretty solid year where you've looked at strategy, tactics, logistics, history, communications, cyber, all of that's kind of packaged in that year of war college. And it it is tuned not fully to prepare you for flag rank but it certainly gives you a pretty solid educational building block then when you're selected the armed forces under the joint structure put you in a very intensive and very good six-week course called capstone and they put kind of 40 newly selected one stars together the course is headquartered in washington dc at fort mcnair but it's very extensive. You spend three weeks traveling all around the country, learning about principally the other services, their roles, and how uh, it fits together in the joint world. And then you take a couple of weeks and go internationally. Uh, some of your classmates will go to NATO, some will go to Latin America, some will go to the Far East, and you see how U.S. alliances work. And then you have a final two weeks where you come together. Um, those classes are mentored by four stars. Uh, any number of my contemporaries, retired four stars, are doing that. You know, I, I applaud them for doing so. Um, so there, there is an educational component, Dan. Um, secondly, how do you feel? Well, first of all, you feel great. Um, you've made it through an incredibly difficult pyramid to get selected. And by the way, at, at, just in terms of the competition, how good everyone else is, um, what they would tell us at Capstone is, you know, we load you up in an airplane and we fly you around the country, but don't worry. If your airplane crashes and all 40 of you are killed, we'll just go back to the services and get 40 more people just as who didn't quite make this cut. Uh, meaning, you know, there's a lot of random walk at the end to who ends up with that star on his or her shoulder. Um, so you feel great, point one. Point two is, if you're smart, you feel kind of scared, kind of intimidated, I was because I knew that I had to step up to a whole new level. And in terms of the Navy, for example, that means going from being, in the case of a surface warfare officer, a Commodore with you know six destroyers, 2,500 people, but you've got a boss who's an admiral, you've got these captains who are running the ships underneath you. You feel kind of like you've got good top cover and you've got a really smart bunch of people under you. 
when you take command of that strike group, and I took command of Enterprise Carrier Strike Group, it, it's a it's a huge leap. You're up with now you have 10,000, 12,000 people. You've got an air wing. You've got a SEAL team. You've got um, all those six destroyers in that Commodore. You've got a logistics ship, two submarines, often an amphibious group lashed alongside. It's a huge step up. So for me, anyway, I was intimidated. I thought, okay, this is the big leagues. These are the lights really coming on. Uh, and then third and finally, you really understand your place in the national mission set. When you're in command of a carrier strike group, you know, the old saw is that when there's a crisis, the president asks, where are the carriers? What he's really asking is, where are the carrier strike groups? And who's, it, who's in charge of that thing out there? Well, you know, when it was Jim Stavridis on Enterprise Carrier Strike Group, that's a big gulp. You know, that's, uh, you know, two years of combat operations, um, people depending on you for making the right call. So that's kind of a snapshot of it. No better job. I'll, I'll close with this, Dan. When I was uh, strike group commander in Enterprise, I flew a lot with the air wing, um, as, as most of the admirals do. And uh, I would say to people would say to me, well, what do you think? What's it like being a strike group commander? I said, well, it's the only job in the world where you can fly in a Tomcat in the morning and in the afternoon you can light off a nuclear reactor. That's a pretty good job. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, let me ask you this, sir. So your time in the flag ranks sort of coincided with um, – you know, the GWAT, right? The, the global war on terror and, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq. And I, I, I've thought about how to phrase this question. Do you feel like this period of the GWAT mm -hmm. is sort of an aberration in kind of traditional geopolitics? And what I mean by that is, you know, militarily anyway, you know, we kind of go from this great power competition that you in 1976, uh, you know, playing chicken with Soviet frigates uh, in the North Atlantic, uh, you know, all of a sudden we go to manhunting. And my question is, you know, are we now back to, an, you know, where where are we today? Is now that we've left Afghanistan is, is, is the manhunt over? Is is the GWAT over? Are we now back to, uh, you know, playing chicken with Chinese frigates in the Taiwan Strait? Uh, what what do you think? Where are we? Sure. Let let's let's back way up. Let's go back two thousand five hundred years ago. Um, it's great power competition. It was great power competition uh, between the Persians and the Greeks. Um, it was great power competition between the British and the French and the Napoleonic Wars. It was great power competition that drove the First World War and the Second World War. It, it has always been great power competition. The, then the wall falls, and that's when things change a little bit. It's, and this is what my former boss, best boss I'll ever have, um, Secretary of Defense Bob Gates, he said the other day, our vacation from history is over. And what he meant was for all the intensity, all the difficulties, all the challenges of those 20 years of the forever wars, it was an aberration. And that we are now back to what has been the norm of human behaviors 
unfortunately, since time immemorial, since states were created, they have competed and gone to war. I think we have, here's the good news, I think we have much better tools to avoid, for example, stumbling into a great power war like 1914, where the great nations of Europe, that's the war that never should have happened. I think we understand history well enough that um, we learned from allowing Hitler, allowing the Japanese empire to maneuver and push against the democracies. We thought we could appease them. How'd that turn out? Not very well. We ended up having to fight them. I think now, today, in today's great power competition, we understand we've got to stop with Vladimir Putin where he is. We've got to deter China from attacking a democracy like Taiwan. So I think we've learned a lot. We have better tools. But to your question, Dan, yes, absolutely. The global war on terror was a distinct 20-year chunk. Now, I'll conclude with this cautionary note. The manhunt, no, is not over. And anyone who thinks that heard the last of the Islamic State or al-Shabaab or Boko Haram or al-Qaeda um, is mistaken. Uh, we have better tools to go after them. And, and, oh, by the way, one positive thing, if you will, coming out of the global war on terror is the ascension of special forces into high positions of command. Um, that's been extraordinary. I'm, I'm old enough to remember when the senior SEAL in the Navy was like a one-star, maybe a two-star. Now yep. we, have, we have Navy SEAL four-stars routinely. That's a good thing because of the talent base that moves. Believe me, that manhunt will continue, but we're going to call on those SEALs to be part of great power competition as well. They will stand and answer the call. Sure. Go ahead, Jason. Looks like yeah, and so, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Putin in, in Ukraine. Um, you know, we're just past the one-year mark on the of the Russian invasion, and during the past year we've seen a conflict play out where both sides have a significant drone capability. That's kind of new. Both sides have a significant cyber capability. That's kind of new. Both sides are, are misleading each other and, and, by extension, us about how many casualties they really have. So if you could, for us, maybe help us peer behind that proverbial fog of war and share with us your assessment of the current ground truth in Ukraine and, and based on that, you know, what our, our real policy options are for us and our European friends. Yeah, let's start with the nature of the fight. Um, so often in military history, we see a particular battle or a particular war where things really do change. A classic example from centuries ago is the Battle of Agincourt, where the French knights had the greatest technology of the age, they think. Um, they're in armor, full body armor. Their horses are in armor. And thousands of them come trotting across that field at Agincourt. Unfortunately for them, on the other side of the firing line is a newer, more lethal technology. It's the English longbow. And the English archers slaughter them in their thousands. They're utterly destroyed with almost no loss to the English. It's an extraordinary, pivotal moment in the use of long-range fires, if you will. Flash forward to the First World War, and you see the impact eventually of tank warfare, which becomes the center point of the Second World War. I would argue, Jason, we are witnessing one of those kind of battles right now where 
what we have thought about using unmanned vehicles, lashing it up with cyber, space observations, putting all of that together and attaching it to long-range fires of a much more sophisticated character, that's really in full bloom, if you will, on the battlefields of Ukraine. It's worth noting, however, there are still very distinct echoes of those tank battles of the Second World War. And I think before this spring is over, we're going to see a pretty significant use of tanks, armored personnel carrier, infantry on the ground. The distinction is going to be, it's going to have that overlay on top of it, of all of these unmanned systems, cyber, special forces. Uh, I've written about this elsewhere, but we often talk about the strategic triad, this being uh, unmanned long-range bombers, intercontinental ballistic missiles, and uh, ballistic missile submarines, the strategic triad. I think the new operational triad is going to be unmanned vehicles of all sizes and shapes, from space to the bottom of the ocean, cyber, and special forces. That's the new operational triad. That's really the heart of what General Berger is doing, I think, very effectively in repositioning the Marine Corps for a potential fight in the Pacific. And so when we think about um, where that leaves us, um, you know, we have uh, a situation. To me, this the, the Ukraine situation has protracted conflict written all over it. I mean, you've got two, you've got the, you know, Russia historically has a high tolerance for casualties. Uh, the Ukrainians have that same spirit. Both sides have supplies coming in from outside the battlefield. So neither one of their supply sources are being threatened. So would you, would you characterize this or do you see this as something that's just going to continue on for years? I personally don't think so and let me explain why I, I think think of it as two clocks that are ticking over here is putin's clock um it's his burn rate as would say in the world of private equity where where i work today he is burning through people tens of thousands maybe hundreds of thousands of casualties and oh by the way five hundred thousand russian males of military age have left the country can you spell brain drain this is an enormous burn rate in people, as well as equipment. He's lost half his tank force. Um, it's unclear whether China will step up and resupply him with equipment. They're certainly not going to send Chinese soldiers to fight. Um, I think his burn rate is quite significant. Over here, Zelensky has a very different burn rate. His burn rate is us. It's our patience. You see the support for the Ukraine uh, beginning to diminish in certain parts of the Congress. I think it's still strong overall. Same in other countries. It's the expense, the cost, I think, is what's really going to continue to soften that support. So I think two clocks ticking. When Putin really starts to run dry, I think it's going to be this year. I think it's probably going to be late this year. I think over here, Zelensky's support equally is going to be declining. I think those two clocks are going to chime at roughly the same time, which I think will be late this year. That's the moment when we can have a negotiation. Here you get into all kinds of complex variables. Who would do this negotiation? Could be Prime Minister Modi of India, could be the Secretary General of the United Nations. It's going to have to be an outside uh, interlocutor. President uh, Erdogan of Turkey negotiated the grain deal between 
uh, Russia and Ukraine that is still working roughly. Um, so we'll need a negotiator framework. There'll probably be kind of four-party talks somehow. But I think we could get to a negotiation late this year. Then I think the question is, so how does it come out? And here, nobody knows. Nobody knows any of this, obviously. Uh, but my guess would be the end will look somewhat like the Korean War. An armistice, a demilitarized border, um, Russia probably still in control of some Ukrainian territory. On the other hand, Ukraine will get a green light to join the EU, NATO. Um, I think that's roughly how it comes out. And I'll close with this uh, using the Korean War analogy. You know, 20 years after the Korean War, which of course ended with this demilitarized zone, to the north was communism, to the south was capitalism. Um, in that scenario, if you look at satellite images of the Korean Peninsula and look at South Korea, it's ablaze with light at night. When you look north at North Korea, there's only one point of light. It's the capital, Pyongyang. Um, I think wherever that demarcation line occurs to the east of it is going to be quite dark, literally and figuratively. I think to the west of that line is going to be vibrant, reconstructed, and part of Western Europe. It's a terrible price for the Ukrainians to pay. I hope they don't have to pay the full price. But would that be worth it? That's a decision for Ukrainians, but I think it probably comes out along the lines I mentioned. By the way, I'll close with one other thought, which is, let's say, for sake of argument, Putin ends up in control of Crimea and a narrow strip of land. He'll go to his people and say, I achieved all my war aims. I consolidated our control of Crimea. I've negotiated this international agreement. We have access to Crimea and all that. What he really has purchased is an enormous bill for reconstruction which he doesn't have the money to do. And he has also broken the phalanx of his military, perhaps irreparably. That's not a very good deal for the Russians at the end of the day. Sir, the only other question I had about that was, uh, you know our European allies as well as anyone. Uh, many nations have pledged to start rearming, uh, and we know nothing bad has ever happened from a militarized Europe in history, right? So do you see the long-term uh, repercussions from this, even if the, the Ukrainian conflict does come to a conclusion sooner? Yeah, I had a kind of a mixed view of all this. We, we need to remember, at the end of the Second World War, we very consciously created an international system where Germany and Japan, who had led the world into war, um, were not militarized societies, shall we say. And you know, now here we are, uh, 80 years later, and we are going to see, I think, Germany rearm, and we're going to see Japan rearm. The Japanese have indicated they intend to double their defense budget. They will be the third largest defense budget in the world if they do that, and I wouldn't bet against it. Um, the Germans will be a little slower, I think, but I think they are also going to increase their defense spending. So the question is, um, is the DNA now so in tune between the West, as in U.S. NATO allies and Japan, are we going to be able to stay together? I think we will. And I think one significant reason for that is not only those 80 years 
of interactions, not only globalization, which has pulled all our economies together, but it's also the concern we share about China. Russia, you know, has created the conditions that are causing this to some degree, but it's really all about China. And therefore, I think that that consortium that runs kind of Japan, South Korea, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, our Pacific allies and partners and friends and our NATO allies with the United States and Canada, I think that consortium holds together pretty well. So, sir, let me ask you this. You know, you hear a lot uh, in the lay press, you know, is, is Ukraine analogous to Taiwan? I mean, it, militarily, it seems like a much, much, much more difficult nut to crack. Um, but, you know, I, I was never a surface warfare officer, so I have no idea if that's uh, based in reality or not. Yeah, you're, you're correct. Um, Taiwan, um, newsflash for all our listeners, is an island. And by the way, it's not that close to China. It's 100 miles of open sea and notoriously rough sea in the Taiwan Strait. Um, so you can't just drive your tanks into Taipei, even if the Taiwanese were inclined to allow you to do so. So you've got a geographic problem. Number two, if the Chinese were to get to the island, and you'll get this immediately as a seal, um, that island is a resistance fighter's dream. It's very mountainous. It's uh, forested. Uh, it, it, there's plenty of space to fall back and mount an internal resistance movement. You know, think think Wolverine in the in the movies. Um, those folks can fight. And then thirdly, you know, here's the question: No one knows the answer to. Would the Taiwanese fight like hell the way the Ukrainians are fighting? Nobody knows. I ask that question a lot. I ask a lot of Taiwanese that question. Um, my own assessment, having visited Taiwan, having met with Madam Tsai, the president of Taiwan, I think they will fight. I think they will fight hard. And at a minimum, Xi Jinping has uncertainty about that. And then secondly, Dan, I think if you're Xi Jinping, you're watching this debacle unfold in front of you after a year ago, just over a year ago, at the Olympics. Remember that? That was so... Uh, at the Olympics... Putin reportedly said to Xi, I'm going to do this. It's going to go really fast. The West isn't even going to know what hit him. I'll be in Kiev. I'll kill that little bum Zelensky, and we will be running that joint, and it'll be just another shrimp on the Barbie for the authoritarian world. That's what he told him. Now, Xi has watched his friend run the table. It's been a complete disaster. And if you're Xi, you're watching this, and you're thinking, I wonder if my generals are as bad as those Russian generals appear to be. Because you don't know the answer to that. China hasn't fought a, a real war since the Korean War. That yeah. was in the 1850s. That's like 70 years since they've been in a serious combat situation. He has no idea whether his generals and admirals are as bad as the Russians or as good as ours. And then secondly... All that equipment, he has pretty similar equipment to what the Russians have. He's got some new kit, the Chinese, I don't want to understate their capabilities. But all of it is a big pile of doubt. And I'll close with this, and then we probably need to wrap up with one last question. 
but I'll close with this. If you haven't kind of studied a little bit about Xi Jinping, I'd encourage you to do that. He is not impulsive. He's not foolish. He is someone who has a lot of patience. He's very thoughtful. Here's a sketch of his life story. As a teenager, he's in one of the highest, most exalted families in communist China. He is a princeling of the Communist Party, except when the Cultural mm -hmm. Revolution comes, his family is disgraced, his father has disappeared, and young Xi Jinping ends up on a collective farm, literally shoveling manure. He's there for seven years. He keeps applying for membership in the Communist Party and is turned down again and again and again. Eventually, patiently, he crafts a path back to power, to ultimate power. Don't underestimate him. He's very patient and very thoughtful. He is not going to lunge at the ball here, particularly with all the uncertainty in front of him. Last question, guys. Go ahead, Dan, if you got all one. Right. Yeah, so, so, sir, you know, we think of uh, uh, America as, uh, you know, the 20th century as the American century, right? The Pax Americana, the way the, the 1900s were the, um, you know, the Pax Britannica, right? So what's the 21st? Are we, are we past our prime or what's, are you buying stock in America or are you shorting us? <laughs> I'm long on America and I think any, <laughs> any sensible investor would be. Just step back from our day-to-day -day acrimony and arguments and some of it horrific and terrible, the absolute criminal acts committed on the 6th of January. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty concerning internal picture. But just stop for a minute and look at the hand of cards here. We're a vast continental nation. We have endless agrarian capability. We have fresh water in abundance. We have natural resources to the degree that we're the world leader in energy, both natural gas, fossil fuel. We have incredible innovation. Silicon Valley, Route 128 in, in Boston, up where you guys are in New England, Austin, Texas. Um, we've got immigration. And yeah, we need to control our southern border, for sure. But let me tell you something. In 10 years as a four-star officer, I went to 125, 128 countries. Everywhere I went, I went to the U.S. Embassy. Two things in common, guarded by Marines. That's a good thing. Number two, lines around the block of people who want to come to the United States of America. Listen, you go to the Chinese embassy, the Russian embassy, the Iranian embassy, you think anybody's standing in line to emigrate there? Nope. It's an enormous force for us here in this country. Um, it's a really good hand of cards. What we have to do, Dan and you and I have talked about it in many other contexts, we have to find a path with leadership to bring the nation together because Nothing can stop us. Nothing. If we can come together. Sir, uh, I love it. Do you have any, anything uh, coming out that we can, any, any reading for our listeners? Um, I, I'm going to recommend my two most recent books. We talked about To Risk It All, which is nonfiction and tells stories about individuals in unbelievably high-risk moments. And the other is a novel, and it's 2034, a novel of the next world war about a war with China. It's not predictive fiction, it's cautionary fiction. It's designed to make us think how we can avoid stumbling into a war. Those are both out there and I, I hope folks read them and enjoy them. 
Dan, Jason, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, sir. Yeah, appreciate, appreciate it. Appreciate your time. You bet. Thank you for listening to An Accountable America, brought to you by Veterans for Responsible Leadership. If you want to learn more about the organization, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook or online at www.vfrl.org. 